Well, I will say if we can't in a non-denominational church find a way to bring Eastern and Western disagreement into the same ecumenical setting, then what good do we have in a setting like this? So I actually thought that call to worship was exactly in line with what we're going to be doing this morning, and I shouldn't be surprised by that. I'm not just saying that. I thought it was really perfect. Um, there is this ancient church tradition discrepancy of what the early church fathers are saying that the believers are celebrating on this Sunday, the early believers. And I'm sure that they didn't, the early believers didn't have any disagreements back then, so it must be, it must just be a problem with record keeping. But I digress. I'm going to be looking at the story of the Magi this morning, and I'm going to give you a fair warning up front. Today's sermon's going to be weird, okay? It's going to be weird. We're going to start with the Bible, we're going to end with the Bible, and it's going to be weird in the middle. And it's just going to get weirder and weirder, but my goal is by the time we're done, no matter how weird it was, you can totally reject the weird if you want to, but you'll hopefully have a takeaway to really think about and let the Spirit lead and guide you this week to consider some things that could be helpful. Sound good? This could, this could be your least favorite sermon. It could be your favorite. So we will find out. I want to start with this story. Let's get the Bible. Let's get the Bible out of the way. No, I don't mean it that way. But let's go to Matthew 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, interesting phrase, we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they heard this, when they, heard, when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Ah, yes. Uh, there is uh, 2010, 2010, I was walking through what's known today as modern-day Turkey, biblical land of Galatia. We were walking through the Galatian countryside. Got out of the bus, and I was following my teacher, and we started up this road. It was not a difficult hike. In fact, you can kind of see the road there. You could drive a car. It's a, it's a vehicle road, access road. We walked up this road, and it had a pretty steady incline. We were walking to the top of a mountain in kind of the back, the back country of the land of Galatia, where the letter of Galatians was written. We walked this road for some time, got about four and a half, five miles back in, 
And then along the side of the road, we ended up seeing in the rocks along the side of the road, this is not only a modern-day access road, but it was also an ancient road. This is very typical in the ancient world. Usually our roads sit where the old roads were because the road was there on purpose for a reason. The reasons are just as good today as they were back then, and our roads are often in the same lines as the old roads were. And so this was also an ancient path as well as a modern one. And this ancient path had these carvings along the side. That was not 2010. I looked much different back then. <laughs> this picture and photo is from 2017. Um, I looked up for those seven years. I hunted and I hunted for this mountain. Could not find it and then found it on one of my scouting trips and have yet to get a group to the top of this mountain. But I am committed this June to get my group to the top of this mountain. But along the side of this road, you see these carvings. Now, it might be a little hard to make out, but on that rock there, what you see is two houses right next to each other. You can see the roof and a square. So it's a house. Two houses, and inside the house is a bull. So this dates, these carvings date back about 2,000 to 3,000 B.C. during the Phrygian Kingdom period, during the ancient Phrygians in ancient, modern-day Turkey, but ancient Phrygian kingdom. Here's another depiction of what you might find, totally different carving, but you can see the house, and inside the house, the bull. We're about five miles in on the road. About half a mile later, we bump into this old, ancient amphitheater, Hellenistic amphitheater built into the side of the mountain on the other side of the road. Now, this is only, it's Hellenistic. It's only going to date till 100 B.C. So 100 B.C. The other ones were 2,000, 3,000 B.C. Now we're looking at 100 B.C. That's weird. They've built a theater. Now, I don't know if this is making any sense, but there are no cities on this mountain. There's no residential districts. There's no, there are cities at the bottom of the mountain, like if you go down to the bottom of the mountain, there are just a, within a few miles of the bottom of the mountain, there are a few different villages, both modern and ancient villages. There are actually ruins right at the bottom of this mountain that I won't tell you what it is in case you ever come with me, I'll ruin the whole surprise. But there are, there are ruins, ancient and modern cities at the bottom, but nothing on, why is there a theater five miles towards the top of this mountain in the middle of nowhere? Like would you walk five miles to see your movie? <laughs> It's a weird place. Put the theater. There's a theater at the bottom of the mountain. There are many theaters at the bottom of the mountain. Why is there a Hellenistic amphitheater built into the side of this mountain five miles up on this road? About half a mile later, we get to the top of the mountain, and there you have the ancient ruins of an ancient Originally, now they've since done, this is 2000, this is actually 2010, this photo. Uh, since then, they actually have done, uh, uh, when, I, when I was there in 2017, there was an active archaeological site at the very top of this mountain. They didn't let me in. I tried to act like I was somebody special and I knew what I was talking about and they still didn't let me in. <laughs> Do you know who I am? And they're like, Sprechen die Deutsch? And I'm like, <laughs> English? No. Okay. This is the ancient foundation to an ancient Phrygian temple. More was built on top of it later, but about 2000 BC, there is an ancient Phrygian temple there to the god Meneskenu. Say men, Eskenu. 
Now, men Ascanu, and all around this temple, by the way, more depictions of the same bull in the house. The bull is in the house. Meniskenu was an ancient Phrygian god built on what we might call the zodiac today. For them, it was just the, the, the gazing of the stars. This temple was here because it sits atop the mountain and in just a perfect location for the spring solstice. So when the sun rises on March 21st, it rises in just the perfect way where the sun shines into the temple and celebrates the god Taurus. They call it Meniskenu, different name, but the god Taurus. The bull is in the house. The constellation Taurus. Everybody following me? I know it's weird. It's going to get weirder, so hold on. So you have the bull in the house. March 21st, the sun rises into the constellation of Taurus. If you don't know anything, like the I'm assuming we all kind of know, the zodiac is like, if you were to look up at the sky, the zodiac is like a gigantic pizza with 12 slices. And each one of the slices is one of the, has a lot of things in each slice, but one of the things in each slice is one of the major signs of the zodiac. Does that make sense? And every one of those slices is known as a house, the house of Aries, the house of Taurus, the house of Scorpio. Every one of the slices is a house. So as the earth rotates, as the constellations move, I'm not an astronomer, you get that pretty clearly, but on March 21st, that sun rises into one of those pizza slices. On March 21st in 2000 BC, the sun rises into the house of Taurus. And they celebrate this god, the god of the cosmos, Taurus, the worship of Meniskenu. Here's the problem. On March 21st, the sun will not rise into the house of Taurus. The sun rises into the house of Ares. So on March 21st, if you were to go out this year and we'll look at where, what house the sun rises on March 21st into what house, it would be the house of Ares today. There was a Greek philosopher in 167 BC who was looking through these old records. He was, at, he was a part of the Hellenistic school in Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And he was looking at all the Egyptian ancient astrological records and ran across this idea. 2000 BC, the sun is rising to the house of Taurus. And the Greek philosopher said, no, it doesn't. And so the Greek philosopher traveled all the way to Babylon, which is a whole nother, an independent school. Everybody was studying the stars. That's been true of humanity for thousands and thousands. Everybody studies the stars on some level. So he went to the school in Babylon to check their records. Sure enough, 2,000 years before him, the sun was rising to the house of Taurus, people said. But it's not. It's rising into the house of Ares. Now, here's what we know today that the, that the philosopher in 167 B.C. didn't know. Today, we know that the earth sits on an axis and rotates. And when it rotates, it has the slightest, tiniest little wobble. A little wobble. <laughs> this is my really technical scientific language. I went to Bible college, not liberal arts school, okay? has a little bit of a wobble. And that wobble... Over the course of 2,200 years, give or take a century, over the course of 2,200 years, that wobble shifts our reference point to the zodiac. So that every 2,200 years, the sun will move from one house 
ever so slowly, ever so slowly, 2,200 years into a new house. So it went from the house of Taurus to the house of Ares, where it still rises today, although in about 100 years it's going to change. Those of you from the 60s and 70s may remember the song telling you that we're coming on the dawning of the age of Aquarius, age of Aquarius. I told you it was going to get weird. <laughs> so that's about ready to happen again. And, and good news, uh, the age of Aquarius is supposed to be a time of great peace and prosperity for all of mankind, so we have that going for us. Nobody laughed at that joke, but... <laughs> So, so that's, that's about ready to happen again. But this happened about 2,000 years ago, right about the time that everybody... And so they didn't know the science behind this. And so the Greek philosopher and many others came up with this very popular tale. And it went throughout many different lands. It had a Persian version and a Babylonian version and a Hellenistic version and all different kinds of versions. But the version of the story went like this. Somewhere there must exist a god that is so big and powerful that this God is outside of the cosmos, outside of the fabric of our universe. And we don't know when and we don't know how, but somewhere over the last 2,000 years, this God tore open the heavens, entered our cosmological soup, killed the bull, Taurus, slaughtered the bull, left patched up the universe, and we now worship this great God that we didn't know existed, but now we do. Now, in the Greco-Roman world of the Bible, that worship looked like something called Mithra. Say Mithra. Mithra, by the end of the first century A.D., was the fastest-growing religion in the Greco-Roman world. Number two, Christianity. If that gives you a reference point to how popular pop culture, popular this narrative was. It was, a men's, it was a man's cult. It was beer and brats, and I'm not joking. I'm not making that cute. Like, it was literally beer and brats. Like, that's what they did at Mithra gatherings. Some things never die. <laughs> so we have, this, we, have this, uh, we have this situation upon us. I, I love to consider that when God made the universe... He made the earth, and I know this isn't true, but I love to just picture God with a twinkle in his eye, get everything just perfectly designed, and then take the earth and just go, boop, and put a wobble in it, so that at just the right time when Jesus is being born, everybody is fascinated by what's taking place in the cosmos and the, and the stars. That's just my clever, I, I saw that from my teacher, but I always have loved that clever perspective, that God in his divine providence and power would make the universe in such a way that everybody might even be watching for something to enter the universe at just the right and appropriate time. Now, this was the popular, this was the popular narrative that most everybody was starting to hear, cling to, and follow. There is a group of people known as magi, say magi, from the east. We don't know if there was three, it's as good of a guess as any. There's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Church tradition has three names. I'll go with three. That's fine. There were magi from the east. Usually the east is Babylon in the Bible. Usually it's Babylon, Chaldea, Mesopotamia. That's the land of the east. 
There are these magi. You know, one many people will translate magi as stargazers. There's a scholar from Notre Dame that did a bunch of work on all this stuff, and one of the things that he pointed out was about 4 to 6 B.C. We don't know exactly because there's a big discrepancy in the calendar and how the calendar works, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to 6 B.C., there was a collision of three stars, Jupiter and Venus, which, by the way, just happened two years ago. Some of you may, I see some of you nodding. I had just moved here, and that winter the news was making a big deal about the Christmas star. And they said the same thing that happens, happens about every, I want to say 70 to 90 some odd years. I can't, I'd have to go find that on the interwebs. But somewhere, it doesn't happen all the time, but Jupiter and Venus intersect and it makes a super bright star. I remember I just moved here, it was COVID, we were bored, we got into a car, we went out to one of these parking lots on the edge of the city, tried to get away from all the light noise, and we just looked at, do you remember this? We looked at this bright star. It wasn't unbelievably, it was just, it was just a, an oddly bright star in the sky. And that happens every now and then. That was the same thing that was happening in 4 to 6 BC, except there was the collision of a third star, which in the ancient world carried the name the king. And this king was intersecting. And this only happens, if I remember my notes correctly, about 2,700 years this happened. Very rarely will these three orbits collide, but this collision of orbits was happening, and these, you can imagine, I, I can imagine, what these three magi, or four, or six, or twelve, were thinking as they considered Jupiter, the father star, Venus, the mother star, giving birth to, what was the third one? A king. Told you it was getting weird, bear with me. This all makes sense, that the magi would see this. My question is this, as I start to work towards a close. Why do they know to show up in Judah? I know that people are like, well, they were following the star. The star was like, and I don't know what that, I don't necessarily read that passage as there was like a star like hovering oddly in the sky that they were like following. And then it stopped like right over the, it kind of reads that way. But they talk about a star that they saw at its rising. And they say it twice, the star at, the text says it twice, the star at its, the star that they saw at its rising. Why do they know to show up in Israel and Judah? You know they had a predecessor from Babylon, somebody that had gone before him about 1,300 years before the Magi. They had a, a predecessor, a forefather from the same land that had given a prophecy. His name was Balaam may have heard of Balaam in the book of Numbers. He was a pagan, uncircumcised stargazer that Balak hired to come utter curses against the people of God. To come utter, and if you remember the story, he won't. He has this weird, reverent connection with God Most High, the God of Israel, and he refuses to curse. He will only bless. And he ends up saying this in his fourth oracle. This is his fourth oracle. So he uttered this oracle saying, the oracle Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is clear, the oracle of one who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High and sees the vision of the Almighty who falls down but with his eyes uncovered. I see him but not now. 
I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, also same word used for king and ruler. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the borderlands of Moab and the territory of the, Shekite, of the Shethites. Edom will become a possession, Seir a possession of its enemies. While Israel does valiantly, the one of Jacob shall rule and destroy the survivors of Ur. A star shall come out of Jacob. You don't suppose that they knew from their own ancient records of their own ancient prophet just enough text that they put two and two together and show up on Herod's doorstep saying, where is he? Now, that's the end of the weirdness. Let me work towards a closing. The story of Epiphany, for some of us, is a cautionary tale. For some of us, the story of Epiphany is a reminder that the God that we worship, well, he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a town full of God people. They even know the people, the, the experts, the scholars told Herod where the Messiah people were expecting. At least some of them were expecting the Messiah would come from where? Bethlehem. For some of us, Epiphany is a cautionary tale that we can be people that know all about the Scriptures, all about the Bible. We can be people that claim to follow God and worship Jesus. For some of us, the tale of Epiphany is a, ca a cautionary tale that Jesus could be born literally in our basement and we would miss it. The story of Epiphany is a cautionary tale that we would hear all of these things and we would look at the Tarochtony, that's what this is called, the Tarochtony, we would say, oh, what pagan nonsense, what silly stargazing worship, where will that get you? And we can go about our business and we can sing our songs and we can show up at synagogue and we can do all the things and we can go through all the motions and God can show up in a pregnant woman to which there's no room in the kataluma, say kataluma, the guest room. So the pregnant woman, whether she's in the cave on the edge of town or the basement where you keep the animals, that's where she's giving birth because you can't scoot over and make room for a pregnant woman. For some of us, the story of Epiphany is a cautionary tale that those of us that claim to know, know the Scriptures, and we do know the Scriptures, see the things, know God personally, know what he's up to in the world. He could show up literally in our basement where we keep the dog and we wouldn't even know it. I have what may seem like some bad news for us this morning. 2024 is going to be an election year. <laughs> it's beginning. Have you heard? It's going to be a doozy this year. I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I, I'm just looking into my crystal ball. I don't want to be a real prophet here, but I think this year it's going to be a doozy. And, and, and I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're ready. I'm just like, oh, listen to me. God's going to show up in some super, super, super weird places this year. I can almost promise you that. Weird places.
places that you're like, nope, God doesn't show up there. What are you saying, Marty? I don't know. I just know the story of Epiphany is a cautionary tale. Be careful. Be careful before you go, I know what this is supposed to look like. I know righteousness and justice. I heard Marty talk about Zedekah and Mishpat. Be careful. Be careful before we go, I get this. I got it on lock. Because the people that had it on lock missed it. You want to know who got it? Some pagan, uncircumcised stargazers Did they go back home to a synagogue? Were they believers? Were they saved? Because that's the only thing we ever seem to care about. We're told they go back home by another route, by the way. But they go back home. I'm, I'm assuming they don't go back home and, and start a new like, synagogue plant, plant a new synagogue. I would assume that also on some level they are believers, but but your whole New Testament is full of these stories. So on one hand, the story of Epiphany for many of us is a cautionary tale. Be careful or you'll miss what God is doing. But for others of us and for some of you, Epiphany is an unbelievable, scandalous story of good news. You're like, you have no business being here, like you don't really know anything about anything. You're not sure how the Bible works and you couldn't tell, like there's an Eastern and Western church like you didn't even know and, and, you, and, and you're like, I, I am like so far outside the bounds and I'm pretty sure I'm not doing things right and I'm an uncircumcised pagan stargazing sinner and whatever. But you have just enough humility, just enough curiosity, just enough wonder, just enough knowledge to show up and say, where is he? Because I want to find him. And you know what the Bible says over and over and over? Not just this story, but in so many parables of Jesus and so many stories of the gospel and so much of our New Testament, you know, you know what the story says? You will not be denied. And all the people of Bethlehem may work really hard to deny you. But if you come looking for the king with just enough humility and just enough wonder and just enough curiosity and you're just desperate and you're wanting to know where he's at, you will find him. And that is the story of Epiphany. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, um, I'm sure that there, are some of, that there are many of us that know exactly which camp we fit in. We are the people of Bethlehem that need to hear a cautionary tale of how you show up and where you send your birth announcements to and how they show up in the weirdest of places, to shepherds and stargazers, like you send announcements into the stars that we would call pagan worship. And those of us that have all the word and the text and all the stuff in us and we've got all the prophecies and we've got the doctrine and the theology and somehow in the midst of all of that we build these blinders sometimes. Not, not all the time, but sometimes. It can get in the way. And the story of Epiphany wants to grab us by the shoulders and slap us across the face and remind us to be very careful before we make too many assumptions. But God, I'm, I'm also assuming that there are some that very clearly know that they are like the Magi. 
I'm not sure why I'm here. I don't belong here. I don't, but I, w- I would be interested in seeing Jesus. And I just pray that they would see you in whatever way you would want to show and manifest yourself. I, I pray it would be through your people. I pray that as we break bread and drink juice, that it would be a reminder that we're supposed to be the manifestation of your presence in the world. That when people come looking for Jesus, they'd find it in those that have the, the danger and the temptation of missing it. And God, I'm also assuming that there's probably many of us that kind of fall somewhere in the middle, and we're not really sure if we're group one or we're group two, and I would just pray that we would pursue the same kind of humility, the same kind of curiosity, the same kind of wonder, that we might fall on our knees and worship, pay homage to the Jesus that has entered our world, torn open the heavens, Isaiah says, rend open the heavens and come down. And you did. You tore open the heavens and you entered our world. A God bigger and greater than all of our cosmos. And you messed with stuff and you, 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 you brought your kingdom and then you left. God, that we would follow you. We would listen to your teachings. We would take them seriously. And we would partner with you in bringing kingdom to the rest of the world. So Jesus, thanks. Thanks for the story of Christmas and Advent. Thanks for the story of the Magi. Thanks for the story of your baptism. Thanks for all of it. May we be people that look like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.